Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Nicholas Brook, the chairman of the Harbour Front Commission, has been based in Hong Kong for nearly 40 years. He started off as a rural chartered surveyor in England before heading to the Gulf and then on to Hong Kong in 1979. We'll be talking about Victoria Harbour in a later programme. But today, Nicholas Brook tells me about his life here, his work with Swire, the Taiku development, and how Pacific Place was to show that Swire was here to stay, amid jitters in the territory ahead of the handover. Currently, I'm the chairman of the Harbourfront Commission, which is responsible for 73 kilometres of waterfront, and particularly the enhancement of that waterfront. But I also sit on the Sustainable Development Commission. I have a, a property advisory business, and I'm also now heavily involved with APEC, and uh, Apex Innovation and Technology Agenda. So you travel quite a bit? I travel quite a bit, and this year it's even more challenging because uh, Peru is the chair, and Peru, bless its heart, is 27 hours from Hong Kong, whichever way you go. <laughs> so with Apex, tell me a little bit more about that. So you are, you're in some form of advisory role? Yes, I'm a strategic advisor. Um, as you know, I was the chairman of the Science Park for 12 years here in Hong Kong and obviously grew to understand a great deal, if you like, about innovation technology, but particularly the role of innovation and technology uh, as a driver of growth and underpinning growth and form relationships all around the region. And APEC is largely driven by policymakers, and they're very keen, if you like, to understand the relationship um, between the business community and innovation technology and how, how the, what policies or what uh, frameworks and ecosystems they should be establishing to promote and underpin uh, innovation technology. So you work on all these various bodies plus run your own firm. Uh, in terms of what brought you to Hong Kong, can we go right back now to 1979? Well, perhaps we go back a little earlier <laughs> because I'm, a, I'm somewhat of a gypsy, uh, maybe I would describe it that way. Um, spent my early years in Brazil, so fellow Portuguese, my father worked for ICI. Then went back to UK, finished my education, did land economics, actually qualified as a rural chartered surveyor. So my early years were managing farms and estates uh, for the Crown and the Church in England. And then by, uh, as a result of a chance meeting uh, with an Arab gentleman in London, I met the son of the ruler of Dubai and was invited to go to Dubai and help... Just with. coincidentally? Just coincidentally. Well, actually, he was in reception. And when I walked into reception one day, and young Brooke, being entrepreneurial, stuck his hand up and said, said can I help you, sir? And he turned out to be the son of the ruler of Dubai. And he wanted to buy a house in London, so I helped him do that. And then we bought more properties in London. And then his dad said, you better come back. Uh, Sheikh Rashid said, uh, you better come back to uh, Dubai and help me uh, invest, my, invest the oil monies because the oil monies would begin to flow then. So I spent three years in Dubai helping the royal family, then was transferred a bit like a football player to uh, Bahrain and did two years with the Bahrain royal family and then three years with uh, Abu Dhabi royal family, helping them build up their investment portfolios around the world. And then was asked by Swire, come to Hong Kong in 1979. So that's nearly 40 years ago. Um, in terms of when you first arrived in Hong Kong, can you recall what your first impressions were? Well, uh, I, I came out of the desert, <laughs> so you can imagine um, we were creating cities in the desert um, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Bahrain, so very, very different environment, and come, came to this hustling, bustling city, which, you know, um, in those days was very much driven by trade and was very much driven by um, entrepreneurial people. 
But there would have been, I mean, in terms of the level of high buildings would have been far lower. Uh, you'd have also had a lot of factories in the new territories at that time, wouldn't you? Oh, yes, yes, uh, yes. I mean, Hong Kong um, was transitioning, if you like, then from a manufacturing um, hub, a base, if you like, to a services economy. And that transition only just started. And the reason that Swar asked me to come to Hong Kong was that they found themselves with a portfolio of redundant buildings on the waterfront, uh, the dry dock at Taikishing, the sugar refinery, a, a number of warehouses, which had served their purpose, and life had moved on, or business had moved on. So these were empty buildings now? These empty buildings, yes, yes, yes. Can you describe what they look like? Very, <laughs> very sad and sorry for themselves, um, as, as empty buildings do when they start to deteriorate. But Swire realised that they, you know, they had to make use of the land and the portfolio, um, and saw it potentially as a real estate opportunity. But in those days, uh, if I may put it this way, gentlemen didn't get involved in real estate. No, we had an interesting debate at the time, a quite serious debate, because at that stage in the UK, there was a gentleman called Mr. Rackman, who was a rapacious landlord and had done terrible things to his tenants. Um, the church commissioners had got themselves into trouble because they had uh, a number of uh, ladies of the night, if you like, uh, living in their accommodation. And real estate in UK had a fairly bad name at that stage in time. And the Swire brothers, of course, are based in London. The Swire family is based in London. So their view, if you like, was to some extent influenced by what they saw on, on their domestic doorstep. And so how did they want you to start in Hong Kong? Well, the, the, the challenge was to obviously produce a master plan for Taiku and the, the area adjacent to it, what is now called the Taiku Trading Estate, and to come up with a comprehensive plan and persuade government that they should think forward, they should be prepared to accept uh, what was going to be a housing uh, community of over 50,000 people. And in those days, of course, we didn't have the connectivity, if I may put it that way, that we have today. Of course, no island eastern corridor. MTR was still in its infancy. The island line was being planned. So what were your transport options at that time? Well, there were none, because at, those, at that stage, uh, um, King's Road was a single lane with passing places. <laughs> <laughs> um, so government was very keen and understandably uh, concerned that we create job opportunities um, close to Taiku Shing. So we're, as we planned the residential element, we also obviously planned... Um, what's um, what's called the Taiku Industrial Estate. So as far as we could, we were going to provide jobs in the locality. And that was the only way, quite frankly, the government was going to entertain uh, a development of that scale. In the UK, you'd been a rural chartered surveyor, so your experience was farmland, uh, what, villages? Farmland and villages and woodlands and valium pigs and sheep. And uh, And your uh, job was? In the UK, it's called a land agent. Uh, effectively uh, managing uh, rural properties for the Crown and the Church. And uh, now in Hong Kong, you're looking at creating out of uh, Taiku, the the former sugar factory there, you're actually going to now create conurbations of 50,000 people. How on earth do you plan something like that? Well, you step back and you plan very carefully. The thing we were very keen to do was to establish uh, a new new regime of standards, if you like, in terms of open space, in terms of size of unit. Um, and these were private? These were private. And these were, ta- you know, you mentioned height earlier. Um, you know, we were talking of um, buildings of between 30 and 40 storeys, um, which were very uncommon in those days. So the positioning and the shaping of the flats, the, uh, the sizing of the units, uh, all had to be thought through very carefully. 
But if you've got 40 stories, what are the considerations in Hong Kong? I mean, what, uh, what materials do you use? Do you use steel inside? Do you have to sort of uh, taper it off or whatever you do to make it wiggle during, <laughs> during typhoons? Well, th- from a structural point of view, 30 to 40 stories is not a challenge. It's when you start to get about... I'm not an engineer, but uh, my understanding anyway is that once you get about 50 stories, then you have to start thinking carefully about the, the factors you mentioned. It's more a question... I mean, in those days, for instance, um, fire. We didn't have fire appliances that could um, uh, reach the upper level, so we had to have strong, major discussions with the fire services department, and they had to gear themselves up for the, uh, the vertical world, if I may put it that way. And were there any, ex- I mean, did you look to New York or London for a building of this height? Oh, yes. I mean, yes. I mean, obviously, we did our homework extensively. But um, at the end of the day, yes, you can pick up concepts and principles, if you like, from uh, other overseas examples. But we decided very early on that we, it had to be a Hong Kong tailored model and it had to respond to the aspirations of the Hong Kong uh, um, purchaser. What uh, are the weather challenges of Hong Kong? Well, you obviously have extensive rain, you have typhoon, and the temperatures are, are, are something that obviously, in terms of um, creating a livable environment, that you have to have to address as well. So penetration, um, have to be conscious of use, insulation, etc. All, all these things have to be built into the design. And also, when you have, when you're actually building for a community, I mean, this was a, a private housing complex, but when I look at communities that, that uh, I mean, Hong Kong is always expanding into new towns. Some of them have been more successful than others. Um, you know, places like Tin Choi Wai mm-hmm. have had a lot of criticism for not enough infrastructure, not enough community services. Um, when you're looking at the 50,000 people who some are going to be commuting, some are going to be old age pensioners, some are going to be children, um, how do you set about organising all the facilities that are required? Well, this is, this is back to my point about having a master plan. You, you, you clearly need a mix of uses, a mix of facilities that support all generations and, and all in, interest groups, if you like. Um, retail was a major component, of course, and the city plaza was the anchor. Because, again, if you, if you remember, um, very little transportation in those days. So most people were going to live and work within, a, within walking distance, if you like. So providing the facilities in, in, in community, if you like, to support their, their everyday lives was very important. So it was not just uh, the retail. It was um, obviously recreation. Um, it was particularly providing um, the open space, the green, uh, the areas where people could relax, community facilities. We we work very strongly with the early purchasers to build up a, an owners association so they could have representation. And ultimately, the owners association took over the management of the uh, the estate. Do you find though it's interesting that you should mention retail? I mean, do you find though that retail tends to rule in Hong Kong sometimes? Um, well, retail in uh, that stage in time, you, you were looking mainly at uh, retail foc- focusing on consumables, uh, everyday needs. Um, there was an element of luxury, if you like, but um, it, it was a very much down-to-earth uh, approach um, 35, 40 years ago. Now, you as an individual, I mean, aside from your work, when you arrived in Hong Kong, I mean, what were you doing on your weekends? What, what kind of place was Hong Kong? We had obviously far less development than we had today, and, and uh, my, my wife and I are great runners. Uh, so uh, we were out in the parks, out in the new territories, and of course new territories in those days was very different to today. Uh, and you could walk all day or run all day uh, and see nobody at all. And where would you run today? 
we live on the island, so we tend to run in Titan Park, up and down the hills, um, lots of steps. But uh, we, 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 we're cross-country type runners, so we, we tend to head for the hills whenever we can. Do you think that Hong Kong generally doesn't let, the, let its um, country park shine? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's one of the jewels in the crown. Uh, I think the other jewel is the harbour, uh, but um, I think the parks are, are, are uh, a missed opportunity in many ways, if you like, both for the community... And the community now are becoming uh, more active and, and they are spending more time in the parks, but certainly from a visitor perspective, we should be capitalising on the, the value of the asset. When you got here in 1979, was everybody wandering around in chung sums and flares? Yes, uh, casual dress. Um... I don't think I wore a tie for the first um, five to ten years of my of working at Swire, even though Swire was a fairly formal organisation. Um, so yes. Um, Did you do the long long shorts and socks like the colonial service? No, I didn't. But uh, many of the uh, people we had to discuss and negotiate with in government uh, were still in colonial dress. Yes, <laughs> colonial gear. Now with Swire, that's obviously a very historic firm. Yes, yes. Well, historic family. I mean, uh, if you've read Noble House, um, basically uh, the Swires and the Jardines were the uh, major players in town right from the outset and built up huge empires largely initially around sh shipping and trade but then over time have obviously moved into aviation services and both are major property owners now as well. Obviously as you say around Taiku I mean first of all how long did that project take to, to create something of 50,000 people so when you were describing at the time I mean around it would have just been factory buildings? Yes, yes, factory buildings um, and, and, country, and the backing onto the country park, of course. Um, it took us about 12 years to build Taikushing in its entirety. And one of the challenges which I haven't mentioned was, of course, it's, it was all reclamation. Um, and, it had, and it had been used for dockyard and other purposes, so we had uh, problems with the contamination that we had to address. And, and then, obviously, we, we kept finding things underground, if I may put it that way, when we were sinking foundations, etc. So it was always a very challenging site. What did you find underground? Um, obstructions of various natures, um, things that have been buried um, as part of the reclamation. Because well, not people. No, no, no not people. No, 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 no. But in those days, of course, the, the, there wasn't really an organised pattern to reclamation as you know now. We we um, pump sand o o uh, and let it settle. No, to be honest, I, I mean, I I mention reclamation so often on the program. So you know, support chater, all of this. But actually, the engineering of how reclamation works. If you could talk me through, I have no idea. Oh well. Uh, reclamation has become an art now uh, um, and basically what, what, what we do today is we build the wall uh, the outer wall if you like and then we pump liquid sand over into, into the area that's to be reclaimed and let it settle and, and keep pumping and pumping uh, sand uh, liquid sand and that pushes the water out over the edge and ultimately you get to your required height and then you've obviously got to let it settle. In Hong Kong, we tend to go in quite early, within a couple of years, just to sink foundations for new buildings. But traditionally, you know, you, most countries would probably leave it for up to five, most situations probably leave it up to about five years, because it can settle up to about a metre. And obviously, if you do roadworks or you put in services, they're potentially at risk in terms of being affected by the settlement. What, so we could see big cracks and things? Well, more than that, if it's a metre. <laughs> more than that, if it's a metre. But, but back to what I was saying, uh, uh, in those days, of course, reclamation was not done in, in the orderly fashion that I've just described. And, and anything and everything was ch chucked into the reclamation to, to create the, um, the newly formed land. 
Um, so, uh, and uh, Taiku had been reclaimed even much earlier, even much earlier than the 1990s, 1980s and 90s. So, th- there was a fair bit of accumulated rubbish in, the, in within the reclamation, if I may put it that way. With the dockyards and uh, the Taiku sugar, are there markers? If I go to that area now, I mean, I often go to the, to the shopping centre there. Right. Um, is there aspects of that where I can find a bit of history about the sugar? Not directly, although in, in the naming of the streets, the naming of the buildings, we've, we've tried to uh, maintain some of, some, some of the history, if you like, um, and the name itself, Taiku. The dockyard and, and the sugar refinery had been built and operated on reclaimed land. So the land had been reclaimed probably 40, 50 years earlier. But you then had to get rid of some toxins from, from the dockyard? Yeah, yeah. How do you do that? Uh, well, I mean, clearly you have to scrape, uh, part of it is scraping off the uh, the contaminated uh, soil and to- contaminated area, and then replacing it, obviously, with, with non-contaminated materials. So in, in those days, it was, quite frankly, it was as simple as that. Mm-hmm. What happens, though, when you have a new area? I mean, I've seen it, you know, did that mean a lot of your, because this was now becoming private housing, a lot of your dock workers and sugar workers were having to move into housing elsewhere? A number of them did move, but there were also uh, around Taiku, which have been subsequently developed, uh, a number of workers' quarters. Uh, they were not part of the, the Taiku exercise uh, uh, when we started, but subsequently they've been, uh, been developed in partnership, I think, with the, uh, with the owners. So you worked on this project for that full 12 years? Uh, yes, 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 yeah. yeah. And then we, um, we got involved, of course, with uh, Pacific Place. The Swire family in the early 80s, one, at the time, this was in the lead-up to the joint declaration, they wanted to show, demonstrate confidence in Hong Kong and belief in Hong Kong, and they authorised us to buy this. The Victoria, it was a Victoria Barracks site in those days, and it was put up for sale by tender by government in two parcels, and the Swire brothers authorised us to buy the two sides. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, obviously, we've had uh, the LegCo elections just now, and, um, you know, there's. it's interesting to see, um, you know, um, aspects of politics here. But in terms of sort of real estate prices at the moment, I mean, you know, it's not so good for young couples trying to get on the property ladder, but in terms of, you know, the, the real estate prices are, are really, really very high. And looking back, I mean, I didn't, I came here in 1993, so that, during that 1980s period where you had a lot of people leaving uh, or getting foreign passports, it's, it's interesting to see those fluctuations in confidence ahead of the handover. We we did have uh, fluctuations in prices uh, in the lead up to '84 when there was still it was not, things weren't so certain. Values fell actually by 50 percent. So you know we, we talk about 97 and 70 percent fall. Well, we've we've been through it before on, on other occasions. Um, obviously, '84 brought certainty for a lot of people from an investment point of view. With the joint declaration. Joint declaration, um, and from that period on, obviously, people were much more confident about buying units. Why do you think that Hong Kong is so in love with shopping malls? In love with shopping malls? Well, it, it, to many, it's a retreat, of course. Um, I mean, if you live in a, a little box uh, up on the 30th floor, a 40-square-metre block box, you want to escape, you want to get away. Um, and one of the escapes is obviously to, to go into an air-conditioned shopping centre and spend a week, a weekend or a day over the weekend there. Um, you may do some shopping, you may um, have a meal, but in many ways it's an escape. But as a, as a big firm, I mean, when you're looking at something like a, a, a complex like Pacific Place, um, I mean, you know, when you were first at that drawing board, um, do you say, you know, oh, we're going to have X amount of retail, we're going to have X amount of uh, offices, 
private housing? How, do, how does that balance work? When you're putting together a mixed-use project, um, obviously you, you work hard to get the balance. And, and the, the secret, of course, is that one element feeds off the other. But we wanted, again, with Pacific Place, just as we've done with Taiku, to, to, set the, to raise the bar and to set a new bar. Um, I mean, a lot of people claim that, you know, um, Admiralty is too far from Central and therefore no one overcome, etc. You know, we had a lot of doubting Thomases. So, and that was one of the reasons we had to, you know, we felt we had to make a statement in terms of design. Isn't it incredible, though? Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> Admiralty was so far <coughs> from Central. Isn't it amazing, the mindset? It, it is, it is. Uh, and it's still true to some extent. But, of course, MTR uh, and connectivity has changed that dramatically. And, I mean, one of the things uh, that drove us to bid for the um, Victoria Barracks site was, of course, the proximity to the station, Admiralty Station, sitting right above the station. So what was Pacific Place before it was Pacific Place? It was the Victoria Barracks. It was uh, where the army had been based. One of our big challenges was tunnels because they needed access to government house, they needed access to the waterfront, etc., but all underground in case uh, things were difficult above ground. So are the tunnels still there? There are some still there, yes, yes, yes. Yep. Have you been down any? Uh, certainly, well, in the process of building the project, yes, been down most of them, had a look at most of them. Mm. And can you describe them? Well, they're obviously well-formed, um, they're dry. They were there, for obviously, for a, a purpose, and they were maintained and kept clean and tidy, if you like, um, in case they were needed. If CY Leung these days wants to sneak out a government house <laughs> off to a brand-name <laughs> shop in Pacific Place, can he still do that underground to avoid the press? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's one that we closed off. <laughs> So they would have been sort of like brick tunnels, and they they would date back to the war or before that. Oh, before they would date back to the construction of the barracks when, you know, they, they, when they were planning. They obviously planned for all eventualities, if you like. And one was obviously how do we get out of here without letting people know, and how do we communicate with the governor, and how do we get to the water without this um, showing our hand. So if I wanted to see one of these tunnels, is it still? No, no, they're not. They're not. They're not um, open today. So what was the challenge of these tunnels then? Well, again, uh, foundations, design, um, and, you know, coming across the unexpected because they weren't on maps, of course, or weren't on plans. The challenge was we didn't know where they were um, because they weren't recorded, deliberately not recorded, obviously. So Pacific Place uh, was built when? Uh, we started construction in early 80s and we brought the sites in two phases. The site fronting onto the, the main road was the first site, and then the road at the back, site at the back was sold. And then, did you at that time have cinemas and other aspects inside there? Yes, we did, and we worked very hard on the Curve Mall, you know, the shopping mall, which I think is, is still it holds its uh, appeal today. Um, the only thing that I would criticise is I, I think it's um, got beautiful flower areas, but what's this thing in Hong Kong that nobody's allowed to sit down? I, I think it, it's a always a challenge when you have a shopping centre because you want to provide uh, amenities and support for the elderly and people who want a, a genuine rest. Um, the challenge that you find in the operating centre is as soon as you provide any element of comfort, people come and squat, if I may put it like that, and spend a lot of time there doing uh, engaging activities which are not related to the mall, if I may put it that way. Um, um, and you end up creating uh, enclaves of, of people, if you like, who um, come and Take, take advantage, if you like, of your hospitality. With the Pacific Place, I mean, back, when you look back to the opening, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I mean, was this something that the governor attended? I mean, was this huge 30 years ago? Uh, yes, of course, of course it was huge, yes, yes. And, uh, yes, every, uh, uh, 
all the ministers and the, and the governor attend. So, um, Swire, if we go back, began with trading and shipping, um, and but it, these days would be property, Cathay Pacific. Yes, would be property, Cathay Pacific, not in Hong Kong, but they have major refrigeration businesses. They are still very much involved in, in trade. They have a strong retail investment. You know, they invest in a whole range of retailers. Um, hospitality, of course, is something that they're becoming more involved in. Pacific Place, when it began, can you recall what kind of retail shops would have been in there? In a way, it's a bit sad because, because there was a much more diverse mix in those days um, and, and obviously uh, more local content than there is today, if you like. Um, the way the world has gone, obviously, over the last 30 years and, and the dominance of the brands and the demand of the consumer for the brands too has meant that as a retailer, you've got to, as a retailing um, owner, uh, you've got to look very closely at mix and many of the, unfortunately, the, the local... Uh, outlets have been crowded out or rented out I think is the right way to put it Now you were saying how you enjoyed running with Maggie, now Maggie's been involved in a lot of heritage projects Maggie as you say is, is uh, very heavily involved with the um, heritage community and set up Heritage Hong Kong um, in an effort to try and save some of the few buildings that still remain which have heritage value When I um, in Statue Square and I look around at the architecture there, I really very I mean I'm not a complete non-architect but I think that that's something that is hugely hugely interesting, you've got um, the former Legislative Council building, now again the court, built in 1912 um, juxtapositioned with a very modern HSBC and then all around um, I regret that some of the 1980s, I would still like to see the Hong Kong Club in its former, uh, or even the old post office or Princess Building. I think some of those were rather glamorous, but perhaps I'm unrealistic in terms of space um, and space versus real estate price. But um, when you look around, I mean, are there areas that you really like enjoy looking at? I think we've done pretty well with Central. I'd like to see more pedestrianisation. The vehicle still dominates too, too much, in my view. But, you know, in terms of enable people to circulate at first floor level, connectivity, um, blending what's left of the old, if you like, with the new, I think we've done a pretty good job. I do worry a bit about the greed factor, as I call it. There's talk about intensifying densities, increasing, increasing plot ratios, which means we're going to build more on the same sites, if you like, in the future. Um, I think we have to be a bit careful that we don't um, overdo the, the density game, if I may put it that way. You spent a number of years in the desert. I mean, I've been... I mean, my, my desert experience is Qatar right. and seeing how they've built the, the universities there. It's interesting that you should have come from such a dry environment into Hong Kong. I mean, if you're building a building in the desert, <laughs> what are the challenges there? The challenge there is, is and I battled with the, the various ruling families hard on this, but didn't make a great deal of success, but is to build something that's, that's genuinely sustainable. The only way you can counter, in many, well, in many ways, the only way you can counter the challenges of the desert are to overdo things in terms of insulation, uh, power generation, uh, energy, etc., cooling, because of the extremes of temperature, obviously. But how do you achieve that in a sustainable way? There are a number of initiatives now ongoing where people are demonstrating you can do things in a much more sustainable way. But I, th I think it's always going to be a challenge in, in a desert-type community uh, to, to do things in a, uh, in a way which is energy efficient uh, and which, if you like, um, uh, reflects sustainability principles.
We'll be talking another time about your work heading up the Harbourfront uh, Commission. When you're looking out at the harbour, I mean, is that you're looking at what buildings will go around it? I mean, is it still very much like that, or has it moved back a little bit more to your, your rural roots? Well, I think it's probably moved back more to my rural roots in the sense that I regard the harbour as a community asset. Um, and it's a people, a place for people to uh, escape to, if you like, people, a place for people to enjoy. Um, and, and so w- what one's hoping to achieve is a whole series of experiences along the waterfront, both passive and active, um, both for, obviously for the exist- for Hong Kong community and for visitors. So um, it, it, I hope it will be something that, that the community will, will treasure and regard as their own. They'll take ownership of it. I mean, I'm very keen the community take ownership of the waterfront. Um, and that, you know, whatever we do is for the benefit of future generations. My thanks to Nicholas Brook, who will be joining me again to talk about the Harbourfront Commission in a later programme. Next week, I learn why Tamar is called Tamar. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.